0: Thank you, Dave. Good evening. Hope you had a good week. And tell you about my week. I got to spend a few days back in Paragould, Arkansas, my hometown. There is a small Christian college in Paragould, Arkansas called Crowley's Ridge College. It's a four-year school in some things, still a two-year school in other degrees, but they have a, a Bible program there. They have four Bible majors. They have about 180 students. And uh, they had their lectureship this week, and I was invited to close it out on Wednesday. Um, Like somebody was saying, are you staying until the bitter end? I said, I am the bitter end. Um, (laughs) But uh, I was the bitter end, and it was really exciting because there wasn't a lot of people there, but the people who were there were people who I hadn't seen in a while who had shaped me and have led me to where I am today. And that was really neat. But it was also neat that when I go and speak somewhere and they introduce me, they say, he has been at the Oldham Lane congregation for 14 years. And I think, you know, this is home. I was home, but I was missing home. And so I'm glad to be back with you. And I thank you so much for making this feel like home. There was a little uh, six year old girl that asked her dad, daddy, what does it take to be a doctor? And he said, well, honey, you gotta go to school for a really long time. You gotta make really good grades you got to be really good at math and science. And he said, honey, you're as smart as a whip. You can be anything you want to be. And she thought for a moment, and then she said, Daddy, what does it take to be a queen? (laughs) I feel obligated to tell you this, although I think you know it, but you cannot be anything you want to be. That is a message we often send to our children. You can be anything you want to be. If you believe it, you can achieve it. That's nonsense, and it's unbiblical. I think the better advice to give is find what you're good at and exploit it. Be the best you can be at whatever God has gifted you with, right? Because there's no such thing as a one-talent individual. All of us have been given some ability and invest in that. Be the best that you can be at whatever that may be. Philippians 4.13, I often call it the gym verse. You see it in weight rooms all across America, right? I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. This is one of those life verses, one of those we see plastered on coffee mugs, the back of warm-up jerseys for basketball. You know, we see it everywhere as a a motivation for those who put their strength in Jesus, who give their lives to Christ, that um, they can score a touchdown, they can score the goal, they can get that job or that promotion. You know, here's the deal. God never intended for this verse to be taken out of context and applied as a life verse that we can use as a means for getting what we want out of life. You know what? No matter how hard I try, I will never be an opera singer. Doesn't matter how much I want to be one, I was not gifted with that ability. No matter how hard he tries, Luke Burnham will never be a professional basketball player. Luke Burnham will never even be a recreational basketball player. No matter how hard he tries. I've seen Luke play basketball. More importantly, Jesus has seen Luke play basketball. And it's just never going to happen. But that doesn't mean that he can't be good at something else, right? Just because I'm not an opera singer doesn't mean that I can't be good at something else. This whole you can do anything or achieve anything with Christ on your side is just simply not true. The reality is that... We can't make a verse mean what it was never intended to mean in the first place. And so when a verse doesn't match reality, that should give us pause. This one doesn't match reality. The idea that you can do all things to Christ who strengthens you, meaning that you can, you can score that touchdown, or you can get that promotion, or you can do anything in the world, it doesn't match reality. Now, there are some things in Scripture that don't match reality, and we We have those exceptions, like a virgin birth, a resurrection. But these so-called life verses, if they don't match reality, that should give us pause. The initial problem with interpreting Philippians 4.13 as a superhero verse is that it doesn't match reality. The other problem, and perhaps the more pressing problem, is that it is an utter abuse of Scripture. Do we really believe that Paul is suggesting that putting our faith in Christ is going to give us some superhuman power or superhuman prosperity? Or is that what we'd like to believe because we're too consumeristic or materialistic? Contrary to popular opinion, the Bible does not teach anywhere that God will give you the strength to do whatever you set your mind to. In fact, here's an important thing to keep in mind when it comes to Bible study as well. Anytime a foundational view of one's theology begins with God will give you, fill in the blank, it's probably going to be rotten theology that follows. Because this isn't just about what God can give you. He's not some divine genie or some heavenly sugar daddy. He's not some cosmic power plant that is there to fuel your hopes and dreams. All that sounds nice and good, but that's not what God is. Truth is, life is full of hurts and disappointments, regrets. Life is messy and most of it's our own fault. You know, we say everything happens for a reason. Yeah, and a lot of times the reason is because you're dumb. We have a lot of problems, and a lot of them are our problems that we cause. We need a God that can, that can pull us out of the muck and the mire. We need a God that's in the foxhole with us, that's in the trenches with us, a God who walks with us when we enter into the valley of the shadow of death. To portray God as some divine bellhop is to greatly diminish his greatness. The God of my health and wealth is a God who never satisfies. We don't want that kind of God. We want a God who is there to sustain us, to give us strength to survive when life has had its way with us. So let's look at Philippians 4:13 in context. Back up to verse 10. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now, the Philippian letter is one of the, the uh, prison epistles, as they call them. So that just simply means that Paul is a jailbird while he's writing this. And because of our rendering of verse 13... We tend to imagine that Paul is like a, a football coach giving a pregame speech. You know, he's got sweat pouring off of him and he's flailing his arms and telling his team to go out there and fight, fight, fight. When in actuality, we need to picture Paul writing these words while imprisoned. Not exactly the dream big, reach your destiny type of picture that we often connect with this verse. But the fact that Paul is writing these words while in a prison. Seems more like a picture of defeat rather than victory. But Paul isn't telling Christians that they need to dream bigger. He's telling them that they can endure when their dreams are crushed. He's not inspiring them to go conquer the world and chase their destiny. He's telling them that they can press on when the world conquers them. The purpose of this verse is not to tell you how to be rich. The purpose of this verse is to tell you that you are rich. You are rich because of who you belong to. You belong to Christ, and that makes you the wealthiest, most prosperous of all. So Philippians 4.13, the message is actually quite the opposite of what the prosperity folks would tell you. Philippians 4.13 is not about achievement, it's about endurance. It's not about being able to achieve anything through Christ, it's about being able to endure anything through Christ. So if you find yourself locked down, held captive because you preach the gospel... If you find yourself facing mocking, ridicule, persecution for preaching the gospel, you can endure. If you have little food or possessions, you can still find contentment because you have Christ. You see, in its proper context, Philippians 4.13 is all about contentment. It reminds me of the story of the young man who went to his preacher for some counseling because he was dealing with some financial hardship. And he goes to his preacher and he says, I've lost it all. And the preacher says, Well, I'm sorry to hear that you lost your faith. He said, I hadn't lost my faith. And the preacher says, Well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that you've lost your character and your integrity. He said, I hadn't lost my character and integrity. And the preacher says, Well, I'm sorry to hear that you lost your salvation. And the man says, That's not what I said. I hadn't lost my salvation. And the preacher says, Okay, so you have your faith, you have your character, and you have your salvation. Doesn't sound like to me you've lost anything that really matters. We often view contentment as learning how to be happy when we don't have what we want. That's how we often view contentment, right? Just learn to be happy when you don't have anything. But Paul is saying, it doesn't matter if I have a little or a lot. I've learned to live in prosperity and I've learned to live meagerly. And in both circumstances, I was fine. Paul's writing while under house arrest, yet he was content. And he teaches a very valuable lesson here, one that flies in the face of the health and wealth preachers, and it's this contentment isn't about contents it's not about stuff and that's a hard lesson for some who are hard driven by the material or the consumerist mindset here's the tragic mistake that is often made in our culture we make happiness the goal and you've heard me say this over and over again that happiness is based on externals contentment is about internal things happiness is based on conditions and circumstances it's about mood it's about emotion we excuse sin even in in spiritual matters we use this this justification We, we we excuse sin by saying well God just wants me to be happy God knows my heart he just wants me to be happy We think on a pretty profound level that God's will for us is just to be healthy and wealthy because after all, God just wants us to be happy. But Jesus taught, my kingdom is not of this world. He taught, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He taught, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus said, go and sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. And the rich young ruler was sad about that because he had a lot of stuff. But it would be even sadder to reach the day of judgment and realize you forfeited your soul for stuff. Jesus even talks about the emptiness of happiness when he says that it's futile to store up treasures on earth because moth and rust are going to destroy those things anyway. Not to mention you lose your soul in the process. It's a complete and utter travesty to suggest that God and Jesus Are primarily concerned with my personal happiness as it's connected to wealth and possessions. Happiness is external, contentment is internal, and many in our world take an outside-in approach to happiness. They rely on external things. They focus on what others have, they become jealous, they suffer from the disease of comparisonitis. And they are buying up things, trying to keep up with the Joneses. And their neighbors are buying things that they can't afford. It's all about acquiring more stuff or taking it from someone else. But that doesn't bring true happiness because happiness is not found in external things. Contentment comes from within. It's, it's about being satisfied with what you have rather than being anxious about what you lack contentment comes when you find pleasure in what matters most, which would be the spiritual and not the earthly. And so, sitting in prison, Paul writes these words, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What was the secret? Money? A full stomach? A good job? He didn't have any of those things, right, while he was in prison. He was in custody for preaching about Jesus, without access to money or a full stomach or a career. While under house arrest, as he wrote these words, the truth became ever clear. Jesus is enough. Remember these words. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches who is weak without me being weak who has led into sin without my intense concern. What do we learn from Paul? Don't go sailing with Paul, right? No, actually, that's not what we learn. How do you learn the secret of contentment? Well, I would think if you're Paul, a lot of it had to do with what he had to endure. And like I've said before, I find great comfort in the fact that Paul had to learn contentment. That means it wasn't showered upon him like some magical pixie dust. He had to learn it. And I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to learn it. And one way you could learn it is by having everything taken away from you. I get the feeling that Paul learned a lot from all the different difficulties he faced. His numerous hardships certainly failed to pass the prosperity test, right? Or the message of the prosperity preachers. It would seem even that based on the health and wealth theology that God was mad at Paul. I mean, if anyone should be the poster child of health and wealth, it should be Paul, right? I mean, who did more to advance the gospel? If the prosperity preachers are right, then why wasn't Paul the richest man to ever live? But Paul wasn't in it for the sake of prosperity. We even see an occasion where he refused monetary help. Paul had learned what it means to be satisfied. And he learned it in the midst of some of the most adverse circumstances. But let's look at it this way. When you get married, you move from a mindset that is I, me, and my, and you move to a mindset that is we, ours, and us. Now, all of a sudden, your needs don't come first. You're thinking about your spouse's needs first. At least you should be, right? I mean, let's face it. If you just want to be happy in a marriage, good luck. You're never going to be happy if that's your only goal, Right. So, maybe you're the wife, and you're going home from work, and you're stopping by the grocery store, and you call up your husband, and you say, can I, can I pick you up anything? You didn't have to do that, but you did it because you were thinking about his needs. As a husband, maybe you had a long day at work, you know, your wife has had a long day at work, and you're, you're driving home, you get off work before she does, and you call her up, and you say, how about I just pick up something for supper? So, you know, you don't need to cook anything, how about if I just pick up supper? You don't have to do that but you do because you're thinking about her needs above your own. And the same is true when it comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Over and over again in Scripture, we find that Jesus refers to a relationship with Him like a marriage. God refers to His people joining Him in a covenant as a marriage. And there's one lady who actually took this to the literal extreme. 38-year-old Jessica Hayes married Jesus. She had a wedding ceremony and everything, to marry Jesus. She's from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and she got married to Jesus at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. She told reporters that it took years of praying and listening to God to ultimately come to the realization that her life would best be served and be at its happiest in the matrimony with Jesus Christ. She said, and I quote, I think that really in some sense we are all called to be married. It's just a matter of discerning how. So, my marriage is to Christ and someone else's marriage is to their spouse. That is a good desire that is planted within us by God. Now, I admire this woman's dedication and her sincerity, but obviously she's a little off track. I mean, when God and Jesus referred to discipleship or belonging to them as, as a marriage, they were speaking spiritually. And the spiritual ramifications of that are are far greater than than an earthly marriage or earthly relationship. I want you to notice what is found in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul relates marriage to Christ and the church. Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So what's the mystery? What does Paul mean? What mystery Verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What's the mystery that Paul is referring to? Well the Greek word that is employed here is mysterion and it can refer to several things but in a general sense it refers to things not previously known that are revealed by God at an appointed time. Remember when Paul said I have learned the secret of contentment? Secret here relates to this word mystery. In Ephesians 5, it's referring to the union of Christ and his people, the fact that they are one flesh, the fact that this union is so beautifully illustrated in the covenant of marriage. Mysterion refers to the once hidden plan of God revealed in Christ Jesus. You think of a mystery novel and how there are certain keys and secrets that are kept until the very end, same sort of thing. Timothy Keller states it like this. He says, this is the secret that the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another that when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. You know, we often read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and we conclude that Paul is comparing the church to marriage, when in actuality, it's the other way around. He's comparing marriage to Christ's relationship with the church. And Paul is pointing to this concept of leaving and cleaving, the two becoming one flesh. This is the mystery that is revealed through our Lord and Savior. Which, which means what? Why bring all this up? Well, it means that the relationship between the church and Christ is mirrored in the relationship between a husband and a wife. Being one flesh is about living out your baptism and remaining in covenant. This is true whether we're talking about an earthly marriage or a spiritual one. The Christian life is about living out your baptism and staying faithful to the covenant. And we do this by putting God first. It's no longer my or I. It's about Him and only Him. Above all else, first place, He is the focal point. Your existence, your identity, your character, your makeup, everything you are is tied to the one you follow and the one that you belong to. That is your life's ambition and therefore your ultimate source of fulfillment. Let me ask you this. If you lost everything tomorrow but only had your faith in Jesus, would that be enough? Is Jesus enough? A probing question I think we should all ask. I don't know that any of us are going to lose everything tomorrow, but certainly we should consider, if all we had were God, if all we had were Jesus, would that be enough? You know, we sometimes sing this song, Count Your Many Blessings. If you remember that song, you know that the message is not Count Your Many Blessings, When everything is blue skies and rainbows. The message of the song is count your many blessings when times are difficult, when life is messy, when you are in the muck and the mire. That's the best time to count your blessings. And the greatest blessing of all is who you belong to, the fact that you are in Christ. In fact, I would say that that sometimes our blessings are just a test. You ever consider that maybe the stuff you have is a test? The stuff that we consider blessings? If those blessings override our faith, then they're no longer blessings, they're curses. And maybe, just maybe, God is blessing us to see if we've forgotten the blesser. Maybe He's blessing us to test us to see, are we going to allow those things to override our faith? Are we going to put our stock in those things? Are we going to invest in the earthly rather than the spiritual? Could I honestly live with nothing but Jesus Christ? There's a a guy from Ottawa by the name of David Simpson. And in 1990, he was at his breaking point. He felt that he couldn't survive. He had lost everything and he needed something. And so he decided to take a gun that had been handed down throughout his family and came down to him. This gun he owned, he decided to take it and go to the local bank and rob it. He got $6,000 by robbing the bank. Now, he wasn't a very good bank robber, and so he got caught pretty quickly. In court, he was sentenced to six years in prison. But what was interesting is that folks in the courtroom began studying the gun that he used. It was evidence. And as they studied it, they found that it was the type of gun that gun collectors salivate over. It was a Colt 45 semi semi-automatic from the Ross Rifle Company in 1918 worth $100,000. You following me? This guy held up a bank and got $6,000. He held up the bank holding a gun worth $100,000. Sometimes it's important to be reminded of what we have in our possession, right? That we are more than sufficient in Christ. We have all that we need and a life lived for Christ is really all that matters. Jesus is our motivation. We are married to him. He is our everything. So so let's not get too hung up on things that don't have eternal value. Let's not be me-centered. Let's not be consumer-minded. Let's be hungry for what matters most and let's always look inwardly before looking outwardly, right? Let's be reminded constantly of the blessings we have and when we count them, First and foremost, we count the blesser, because if we have him, we have enough. Dave, you got a song, don't you? we got an invitation song. We want to invite you. If you have a need, if we can pray with you, if we can help you in any way, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?